Hello, and welcome to Beneath the Subsurface, a podcast that investigates the intersection of geoscience and technology. And in our first episode, we'll be diving into the dynamic field of AI and machine learning as it relates to the oil and gas industry. We'll be discussing the impact of disruptive technology, the importance of robust data libraries when building AI solutions, and exciting possibilities for the future of oil and gas. From the TGS software development team, my name is Erica Conadera, um, and with me today are Arvind Sharma, our VP of Data and Analytics, and Rob Gibson, um, Director of Strategy, Sales, Data and Analytics. Thank you, gentlemen, for being with us today for our first episode. Glad to be here. Thank you, Erica. Um, so let's start our discussion today by talking about the factors that brought the industry to AI and machine learning. Um, why now? Why not sooner? Why not later? Well, I'll start. Uh, so thank you for the introduction. My name is Rob Gibson. I've been with TGS for almost 20 years now. And in that time, the thing that I have kind of seen over the 20 years in this company, uh, and probably another eight or nine in the industry, is that we've always been a little slow to adopt technology. Uh, And I come from the IT side of the world, software engineering, database design. So from my perspective, it's always been a little bit slow to bring in new technology. And the things where I've seen the biggest change has been fundamental shifts in the industry, whether it's a crash in oil price uh, or, or some other kind of big disruptor in the industry as a whole, like the economy, not just our industry, but the entire economy. But in the middle of 2014 with the current downturn, that's really where I finally started to see the big shift toward AI, toward machine learning, toward IoT in particular. But it seems like it took a big, big change in the industry where we lost hundreds of thousands of people across the industry and we really still needed a lot of work to get done. So technology has been able to kind of fill in the void. So even as the downturn happened, we kind of started to level off at the bottom of the downturn And that's when companies started to see that we really needed to inject some more technology to get those decisions made. So generally speaking, I would say that this industry has been a little slow to move to adopt technology, even though the industry's got a lot of money to invest in those kind of things. Um, So thank you, Erica, for that question. And uh, I'm going to slightly disagree. Broadly, I agree with Rob that uh, um, oil and gas industry is uh, historically a little slow in adapting technology. But uh, uh, the reason, I think, is uh, slightly different. I think uh, oil and gas uh, work in very difficult area where we need to have very robust, proven up technologies uh, to work. And uh, in general, we wait a little bit for the technology to prove itself before adapting into um, more difficult areas. So if we look at a little bit historical view, um, we have been on the leading edge of technology for a very long time. Um, Some of the early semiconductors were built by geophysical um, companies. Um, Then uh, as we move to uh, PCs revolution. We started actually. PC, uh, um, we started to actually pick up PCs into office uh, very quickly. Not as good as the silicon graphics people, but uh, soon afterwards. And uh, then, 
when the technology evolution started happening more in the Silicon Valley, then we started to regress a little bit. We continued on the path of what we were doing, whereas uh, there was a divergence somewhere between mid-90s, where Silicon Valley started to actually develop a little bit faster, and we started to lag behind. And uh, I think, uh, as Rob said, that uh, 2014 was a good time because at that time there was a need for us to adopt technology to increase our efficiency and uh, fill the gap that was created due to capital constraint and uh, as well as fleeing off uh, some of the knowledge base uh, employees that's from good, our sector. That's a good point on the technology side because you said that we kind of diverged away from where Silicon Valley really took off in the yeah. mid-90s. I entered into the industry in 94 so for me, my entire career has been that diverging process. And just now it feels really good. Like we're finally catching up, not only catching up, but we've got customers, we've got employees who are sitting inside of the top tech companies in the world, sitting at Google's facilities, even though they're an oil and gas company, sitting and working with Amazon, with Oracle, with IBM, with all these top names. And yet they're doing it in collaboration with the industry where in the past it was almost like the two things were somewhat separated, and now they are on a converging path. They've got the technology, we've got the data, at least in our space, and those two things coming together is kind of the critical mass we need to see some success. So on that note, what kind of jobs do you think are going to be created in the future as the industries continue to converge? You know, that's a, that's a great prognostication. I mean, uh, it's kind of interesting when you look back at... Uh, like Airbnb and Uber and those kind of things. Nobody saw those coming and nobody knew what that was going to look like five years into their business, not to mention 10 or 15. Uh, I think that's what we're looking at in the oil and gas industry as well. We still have to find oil and gas. We still have to explore. We still have to be technologists, whether it's IT technology or G&G technology. We still have to operate in those spaces. But the roles may be very different. I'm hoping that a lot more of the busy legwork is a lot easier for us to work with than it has been historically, but we're still going to have to do those core G&G jobs. I just don't know what they're going to look like five years from now. I mean, the way I see it is that uh, it will be high-grade gradation, like it will be more fulfilling jobs. The future jobs hopefully will be more fulfilling So because a good portion of the grunt work the work that everyone hated to do, but they had to do it to get to the final work, like final interesting work. Hopefully all those things will, this machine learning and AI and broader digitization will help alleviate that part. And even whether you are a technologist, whether you are a geologist, whether you are a geophysicist, or whether you are a decision maker, like in all of those, um, you will start moving from the low value work to high value work. The technologist who was looking into log, log curve, they will actually start evaluating the log curve rather mm-hmm. than just digitizing it. And that's, in my view, it's a more fulfilling job job compared to just doing the mundane work. And I, so that's the part, first part, is that what kind of job? It, my hope is that it will be more fulfilling. Now the second is how many and what type of job. Um, as Rob said, that uh, the speed at which this is moving, um, 
we it will be very difficult for us to do the prediction is that uh, like if we sit here and say that yeah these are the type of job that will be created in five years we'll be doing a disservice we can actually make some guided prediction in which there will be need for geologist or geophysicist or petrophysicist and other people to do in what form will they be a pure geophysicist or a geophysicist who is has a lot more broader expertise a computer science and geophysicist working together those are the kind of roles that will be needed in future because for a very long time we have operated in silos because it's not just technology is changing is the way we work is also changing is that we have operated in silos that we develop something throw it over the fence they they catch it most of the time and then actually move it to the next silo and so on and so forth it's you a factory model anyway. what you hope they do anyway yeah i hope that they do anyway but uh, so that's the uh, sequential process now some of them will be done by machine some of them will be done by human and then you have to actually create a, a workflow which is like fulfilling as well as efficient for the uh, capital invested and perhaps less siloed off less siloed off so there will be team of teams and the team will actually move very frequently so it will be almost like a self organization is that these are the four people needed to solve this problem let's take those four people and work on that problem and then when that problem is solved or productionized then they actually go solve this different problem and so it will rather than back in the days or even today fully hierarchical system it will still be there will be ceo and <laughs> but uh, there will be more um, team of different group and different expertise um, very quickly building and dismantling and those that's the agile methodology that will be needed to take this technology and use it for um, like basically doing things better so to kind of hone in on what you're saying your background is in both geophysics and um software engineering correct I'll, okay so sorry i didn't actually talk about myself <laughs> <laughs> so um i joined the tgs uh, a little more than a year back um started as a uh, chief geophysicist and uh, then moved into this role but before that most of my career has been with pp and uh, before that for a software company so i have worked as a software engineer for some time then got my phd in geophysics and then worked for a little more than 10 years in uh, bp all the way from uh, um writing imaging so basically uh, fundamental imaging uh, algorithm writing to drilling wells so uh, in my short career i have seen a lot of things and uh, what i do see is that uh, uh, there has there is a lot of silos in bp as well as in tgs and bp is also working on it uh, breaking uh, i have a lot of friends there who are saying is that uh, there is a, a significant effort in technology and modernization is happening in changing the culture rather than it's not just about uh, changing pc from going from uh, laptop to ipad that's a that's a tool mm-hmm. but the fundamental change will happen in the thought process 
And if we want to actually use machine learning and these kind of digital technology, then it need to be very integrated and the silo mentality is not going to work. You have to look at the problem as a holistic to solve it. Yeah. So, um, so that's the background. So that's my background. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I asked because I wondered if you think that your career path is going to be the future of the industry. Do you think that there are going to be more people with a dual background in both computer science and geophysics? So that's a very polite way to say that uh, my, uh, I am actually looking at that my career is the right career. <laughs> so uh, n no and y yes and no both. Mm -hmm. I do think that people will become more generalist and uh, they will have deep expertise and it's counterintuitive is that generalist and deep expertise is not the same. Like we are used to someone has a very deep expertise and they are not generalist about other topics. Narrow and deep. So very narrow expertise, but very deep. And they have shallow expertise, very broad. Uh, those are back in the days. I think we are moving towards deep expertise in several different narrow fields. Mm -hmm. So you need like so to truly get good collaboration and innovation, you have to have deep expertise in several different fields to integrate them together. So Rob looks like you're chomping deep, at the bit here. <laughs> deep and broad. So like what we need is deep and broad. Yeah, when when Arvin was talking about uh, kind of the, the career and and uh, some of the other topics, two things came to mind on the technology side of things. If you look back at AT&T, they had a choice and they did investigation and some pretty deep research on whether or not they needed to move into mobile cell phone technology. And they made the choice, they did a big expensive study and spent hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars to identify that they needed to be prepared for an industry of say a million uh, cell phone users by a certain year. And that number was like, I don't know, 150 times wrong. It was way, way higher than that. And you could use the same thing with Kodak. They invented the digital camera and then lost the digital camera battle um, and struggled in the industry. We want to make sure that we're looking broad enough to understand what's coming down the pipe and can adapt and change to that, not just from the individual roles in the company, but the company direction as a whole. To give a, a concrete example is that uh, I have a background in geology, geophysics, and computer science. Rob has background in uh, geo geoscience and computer science and the data analytics team like so our TGS data analytics team they have we have people who has a uh, physics background so they have PhD in physics and then they have worked on geophysics and then working on well logs then uh, uh, the other one um, Sataki he is a geophysicist who now is working on more of a deep learning problem and uh, Shribharat, who is the team leader, he is a geophysicist who is more of a computer scientist who is working on these two problems. Mm -hmm. So um, our team composition itself, the TGS data analytics team composition itself uh, is built in a um, multidisciplinary fashion. So I'm glad that you brought up our, our current team here because I kind of wanted to pivot to the problems that we're using AI to solve for right now. You know, like what... Um, what are the pain points in the industry and how are we using AI for that? So, so, so 
the pain point in the industry are uh, I'll talk about one is uh, one which is very close to my heart I was uh, so in BP I did a lot of salt interpretation so anything which requires a lot of human intervention is a big choke point because our uh, data set is getting bigger larger and larger with a lot more volumes to it or a lot more information to it and uh, we have limited uh, human resources and we want to actually take those human resources and mobilize them to do more high value work rather than doing a lot more uh, um, grunt work salt model building is an example and where we we actually our data analytics team started working they so I'll, I'll go I'll talk about that later but uh, that's an example where a lot of judgment call is made the early which don't require a lot of human judgment call early interpretation is the true place where automation and digital transformation can actually help Rob what's your take on this well the nice thing about what we're doing with salt picking is we're really helping us and our clients reduce the time it takes to get to the indecision on my side of, uh, of the house, my background with TGS is largely on the well data side of things. So it's not so much about reducing the amount of time of processing the data as it is getting a higher value data set in the hands of our clients. So historically, especially in the onshore US, there's a significant lack of data that's reported to the regulatory agencies. So we source that data, as do a lot of other people. We source data from our, our, our customers, our partners, uh, operators, uh, we process that data, but the most important thing that we can do with that is to take that huge volume of data, the largest commercially available in the industry, and add more to it so that the, the operators are able to get to that decision-making process. So like Arvind said, if we can avoid the grunt work and get them to the point where they're actually making business decisions, that's what we're doing with our analytics-ready LAS data set. We're infilling the gaps in the curves because they either weren't run or weren't reported. Uh, we're predicting what the missing curves would look like uh, based on an immense volume of data. So it's not so much about getting the product created faster, although that is another goal that we've got. Of course, we're a commercial company. We're trying to get products to our customers and make money like anybody does. But the ultimate goal with our current Analytics Ready LAS product is to get the most complete data set available so that the operators can make better decisions in the subsurface. Drill less wells drill more productive wells, drill wells faster, uh, all of those things go into why we chose to go down that, that path. So, uh, looking at a higher level, the question that you asked was uh, like, what are the choke points and how we are actually using digital transformation, machine learning and AI to help that. Um, I think we published something like our CEO talked about that in the, uh, few months, a month back, Norwegian Energy Day, uh, there was a nice plot that uh, shows that uh, most of the time we are acquiring data for a purpose. Like we are acquiring data to solve a geologic problem so that we can actually make a decision whether to drill somewhere or not drill somewhere, whether to buy acreage or not buy acreage by our clients. So when you take that data, you have to convert that into information. That information need to convert it into knowledge. And that knowledge is what enables our client to make better, faster, 
and cheaper decisions. And that cycle, converting from data to knowledge to decision and enabling that decision is actually is the big choke point. If you want me to say one, this is the choke point, is that how to actually take data and convert to knowledge fastest way and cheapest way. And that's where most of our effort is. So SALT uh, model building is an example where we, right now it takes uh, somewhere between nine months to few years when we acquire data to uh, provide the clients with the final image that they can do interpretation and make decision. This is too long of a time in uh, this day and age. It needs to be compressed. And a good portion of that compression can happen um, by better compute, but some of them cannot happen without doing a deep learning where humans are involved in like, for example, salt model building where like you can actually throw as much compute at it as possible, but uh, since the cycle time requires human to build that model, it will be, the limiting case is that. So there we want to actually enable uh, the interpreters to take our salt net, which is uh, our algorithm, and uh, accelerate the early part of it so that they have more time to do high quality work and build and build that uh, um, model faster, reduce that cycle time so that uh, our clients can make better, faster, and cheaper decisions. It's been interesting to watch the transition to with our industry and the technology at the same time. We've moved to the cloud, right? All of our data is now sitting at a cloud provider. And if you would have looked at the oil industry five years ago, there's a very uh, security-minded mindset around the industry that says, I need to keep that data because it's very, very critical and I want to make sure that only I've got access to it. So there was a lot of fear about putting data in the cloud several years ago. Now you look at the cloud providers and they're spending literally billions of dollars on things like security and bandwidth and access, things that didn't exist five, ten years ago. So that transition to be able to go to the cloud where all, where all of our data sits today, more and more of our clients are going there as well. And the nice thing about that is you can ramp up your needs uh, on compute capacity, on disk capacity, on combining data sets across partners, vendors, uh, other operators, and, and collaborate and work on that data set together to come up with solutions that you couldn't possibly have done before. So it, it's, it's fun, actually, to watch that transition happen. Um, it is going a little tangent to the question that you asked, but... Uh... Uh, because there is a very in, uh, important point about that cloud services. The biggest cloud platform is Kubernetes by Google, and that's actually open source. So Google developed that and made it open source, available for anyone who wants to build a cloud infrastructure, they can have it. That's uh, the most used open source uh, um, platform that... Uh, um, available today. So that's changing the way people work, like Red Hat or Linux, uh, sorry, Unix, Sun, Sun Microsystem, or Microsoft, or Apple. They are very, like, even in technology sector, they are very controlling of what they are uh, providing to their consumers. They control that environment, whereas now things are changing in which the open source systems, like which is publicly available, 
is becoming one of the most dominant form of a software platform. Um, if you look at Android, for uh, machine learning, it's TensorFlow, PyTorch. Those are open system software that is uh, democratizing the technology so that anyone and everyone can is uh, able to take that next step and solve complex problem because the base is available for them. They don't have to build the base. They can actually focus on solving the higher value complex problems. Speaking of both Google and open source and democratizing yeah. um, problem solving. So TGS recently had a Kaggle challenge, correct? Can, can you speak a little bit about that? So yeah, that actually, so when I joined TGS, uh, I had uh, one data scientist that we, we were working with. Like, so we were still building the data science team. And we started working on the SaltNet problem. We had an early um, success. We were able to do some of those things. And then we realized that there's a like, ocean of uh, data scientists who are across the world. We don't have actually access to that. Google actually open source and they, have, they are working on their problem. They are working on Apple's problem. They are working on very interesting problem. So why they're not working on it are two different reasons. One is that uh, they don't have access to it, and second, the problem is not interesting enough for them. So Kaggle was uh, our effort to make it accessible to everyone and make it interesting so that people will work on it. So just for the um, description of Kaggle, Kaggle is world's largest uh, data science crowdsourcing platform. So crowdsourcing is, uh, um, where you put a problem and it's a platform or website where uh, um, the problem description is given and data science wo scientists work on their like on their spare time nights and weekend or that's their hobby or that's their job and uh, they solve that problem they submit to submit on that platform and they get instantaneous result that uh, how uh, good their solution was so that's a uh, kaggle is the, one of the large world's largest platform for that recently acquired by Google. Uh, so we actually approached Kaggle that can we actually put uh, one of the complex problems that we have on this website or this platform. And they worked with us, so we partnered together to uh, host oil and gas first uh, serious problem uh, for uh, automatically building salt model. And uh, we actually, so to Rob's point, uh, the hardest problem was getting the data rights that convincing our management that it's okay to release a certain portion of data we had to work really hard to create an interesting problem and that once we released that data um, this competition was very successful in the sense that there were around 80 plus thousand different solutions just think of the scope of it from Is almost from almost 3000 different teams 3800 Okay. So uh, close to 4,000 people, yeah, 3,000 team um, com comprised of almost 4,000 data scientists across the world work on this problem for three months and gave us more than 80,000 different solutions. We would have never got anything like this working day and night with whole TGS working on this problem. I, I found it interesting because I, I did a search on Google for our uh, TGS SaltNet. Yeah. And if you look at the results just on YouTube, you'll find probably 20 different videos of 
PhD students, data scientists, getting their master's degree, who are using that problem that we posted out there as part of their thesis or as part of their grad student work to show the, uh, the, the data science process that they went through as part of their education. And now that's out there for everybody to use. So this is a major disruptor, isn't it, to the industry because we have basically non-geologists, non-geophysicists solving problems for you. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, we, there was a lot of teams, right? So there were some that had geoscience backgrounds, some that didn't, but most of them, they just come from a data science background, right? right. So they could have stats or math or computer science or anything. And when they applied this, uh, it was interesting to see the collaboration on the Kaggle um, uh, user interface where the teams were out there saying, hey, I tried this, what did you guys try? And the whole idea of crowdsourcing and, and the idea that we're kind of in somewhat of a unique position where we can do that. We, can, we own the data. We don't license it from somebody else. Um, it's the data that we own that we can put out there. So we've got a huge volume that we can leverage and put it into a community like that where we can actually see some of those results come in. So to kind of put uh, I, you I, on the spot. Can I one thing to say, add to that is not just about data, owning the data, because there are several different companies who own data. Even oil and gas company, they have their own data library. I honestly think that uh, it says volume about TGS. The TGS was willing to take a bet on this kind of futuristic idea and like go on a limb by, and this is, I'm just giving credit to the senior management here, uh, that they were, they allowed us to actually go with this. That was one of the bigger hurdles than just owning data, that management buy-in. Second only to data preparation for the challenge And itself. the second <laughs> only to the data preparation. It took us a, a lot of time to build yeah. an interesting problem. It's not just about like, you have to create an interesting problem too. To attract the right attract. talent. So the winner was a group from Belarus and Japan. They have never met, they have never seen each other other than the Facebook. Wow. Uh, and they actually met on this Kaggle platform. They were working on uh, this problem. They found out that they are approaching with two different ways and they actually teamed up so that they can combine this to create a better solution combining both of their effort and that's that's actually happens to be the winning com combination but uh, traditional method won't allow us to tap into this kind of resources or brain uh, power that someone from Belarus and Japan working together whom we don't know solving our problem and that is going to be a disruptor and we have to be ready to capitalize on it rather than be afraid of it. Right, and that's why I wanted to go to Rob, not to put you on the spot here, but as someone coming from the well data side, do you see uh, any potential future cattle challenges using uh, well data? The, that could absolutely be in our future. I think at this point, we're really trying to frame the problems that we're trying to solve for our customers. And if we decide that one of those problems deserves uh, some time in the public like on Kaggle, then we can absolutely go that direction. Not a problem whatsoever. At the moment though, our real focus is trying to figure out where can we provide the most value to the clients and we're kind of letting them steer us in a, in a, a way. We have got our own geology department internally, so we know what we need to do with our internal well data in order to high grade it to the next level product. However, we're really taking direction from our clients to make sure that we're moving in that direction. 
So, yeah, I could see us having a problem like that, especially if it's starting to get into a data set that uh, needs to be merged with another data set that maybe uh, we need support from uh, somewhere else in the industry or in a different industry. Uh, just a few minutes on that. Is uh, the next problem I think that Kaggle need from oil and gas is more on the solution side. So the knowledge to like information to knowledge side in which you are uh, uh, taking very different type of data set, for example, success failure database for a basin and building a um, prospect level decision. That requires, uh, as Rob said, that a collaboration, that a TGS collaborating with one of the ENP company or someone else, uh, like those two, three companies now bringing their data together because at the end of the day, this integration is what uh, everyone is looking for. Can we actually create an interesting integration problem and uh, put it on the Kaggle competition? So uh, any listener, if they, are in, they have a good problem, <laughs> uh, they can actually contact Rob <laughs> or me. Uh, that, uh, because we are always looking for good partners to um, solve complex problems. We can't solve all the problems by ourselves, neither other people it does require teams to build the right kind of data set, interesting problems in, to, to give it to the world. Okay, so we've talked about how we got here to this point in the industry with AI and machine learning, and we've talked about what we're doing today with it. Um, let's move on to the future, where we think AI will take um, the industry. Um, so to follow up on something that Arvin had said earlier, so you had said that we sort of fell behind Silicon Valley at some point. Um, how, how far behind do you think we are right now in terms of years, if you can make that estimation? Oh, <laughs> that's a tough question, <laughs> but I'll try to answer in a roundabout way. Is, uh, that when I say that we lag behind, we lag behind in the compute side of it, like uh, the AI side of it, and some of the visualization and web-based technology. When it comes to high-performance computing, we were still leading up till very, like probably in some of the spaces we are still leading. So storage and high-performance compute, which is uh, both uh, oil and gas, Defense and Silicon Valley, all three are working. Um, we are not that far behind. Actually, we might be at the cutting edge of it. And that was one of the reasons uh, that we didn't actually focus on uh, the AI side because we were solving the problem in a more high compute way. And uh, we are using bigger and bigger machine, solving more complex problem, more physics-based complex, uh, physics-based solutions. So when it comes to solving physics-based solution, we are still um, at the front of the pack. But when it comes to solve a heuristic or a machine learning or AI-based solution, we are behind. We are behind in robotics and things like that. And we are catching up. So when you think of uh, Mid, midstream and downstream where there is a lot of uh, internet of things, IoT instruments. So fields are getting inst like instrumentized and there are a lot of instruments which are connected to each other and real-time monitoring, uh, predictive maintenance, those are 
happening and happening at a very rapid rate and that will actually will will catch up in few years in in, in midstream and downstream side or mostly instrumentation side where we are truly lagging is subsurface because it's not the problem that Silicon Valley was trying to solve. Uh, subsurface problem are complex. They are very different type of problem that some place you have very dense data, some place we have very sparse data. How to actually integrate that and humans are very good at integrating different scale of information in a cohesive way. Whereas that problem is not the problem that silicon like um, technology sector was trying to solve. And uh, so we are trying to actually take the solutions that they are building to solve different problem and integrating it or uh, adapting that to solve our problem. So that's where like I see like so I, I think it's a non-answer, but that's what the best I have. <laughs> it was a very good answer. So how does this change the way that we're building our products and our approach to getting our products out there? Well, one of, the, one of the things I'll start with is we're actually seeing our clients adopt analytics teams, analytics approaches, machine learning. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of growth in that part of the industry. Uh, and they've gotten past the point where they don't believe that a predictive solution is the right solution. You know, with our Arliss product, we're creating an analytics-ready LAS data set where we're predicting what the curves would look like where there's currently gaps in the curve coverage. The initial problem the customers had was, do they believe that the data is accurate? Uh, we're starting to get past those kind of problems. We're starting to get to the point where they believe in the solutions, and now they're trying to make sure that they've got the right solutions to fit within their workflows in their organization. So I think the fact that they've actually invested in building up their own analytics teams, where they've injected software engineering, uh, geology and geophysics, uh, data science, and kind of grouped them all together and carved them off, where they can focus on maybe solving 20% of the problems that they actually uh, attempt. That's kind of where the industry's gotten to, which means we now have an opportunity to help them get to those levels. You see that uh, change in uh, conferences uh, and uh, meetings and symposiums uh, that, uh, like for example, SEG, uh, Society of Exploration Geophysicists, and uh, that uh, um, conference, three years back there was one session about machine learning and last year uh, machine learning has the largest number of sessions in that conference. So you're looking at a rapid adaptation of uh, machine learning as a core technology in uh, oil and gas, and in, at least in subsurface. But uh, most of them is uh, um, at the very early phases. We, people are trying to solve an easier problem, the problem they can solve rather than the problem that need to be solved. So that's where there's a um, differentiation happening that everyone wants to work on machine learning and most of the people are actually taking solution to a problem rather than taking problem, finding solution for a problem which is relevant. So, um, I think that's pretty fair because uh, you've got to get some sort of belief internally. And if you can prove that you've got kind of a before and after, here's what I did to make this decision or the well that I drilled and the production I've got, and here's what I predicted was going to happen, and you can start to see those two things align, then you start to get belief in something. 
if you just use something that's predictive only and you've got nothing to compare it to, it may be the right solution, but do you have the belief that your company is going to run with it? So that's why I think we're starting to see them solve problems that we know can be solved initially, rather than the big problem of say, if I shoot seismic here, I can predict how much oil I'm gonna produce. That's a big problem and it's at different resolutions and scales than we believe we can solve and, and be definitive about it today. Uh, but I think that I think I agree with you that they're they're really focused on on proving that this technology, that analytics, that AI, ML is going to work for the, the problems that they know about. Uh, uh, agreed only up to a point is that uh, the reason why I think uh, ML AI solutions are different is because uh, in physics one of the, our basic assumption is that. Uh, uh, if we solve a toy problem, you, we, you can scale the same way. If the same solution will apply on a bigger problem. That's not the case for machine learning solutions. The solution that is applicable for a toy problem is not going to scale. You need to actually retrain the data and the solution becomes different as the scale of the problem increases. So although it's uh, um, interesting to see that a lot of uh, um, small problem or very easy problem people are taking to, s people are solving a lot of easy problem using machine learning. To show that machine learning works, that's good. But uh, to truly take advantage of machine learning, you have to actually solve, try to solve one of the complex problem because you already have a solution for those easy problems. Why do I need machine learning? So for example, ARLAS is a good example. Um, our analytic ready LAS in which we are predicting well logs from the available well logs. Now, if I have only one well or few wells, then I actually want my petrophysicist to go through the physics-based modeling and solve that problem. I don't need AI to solve that problem. I have actually solutions which works there. If the solution that I need is that how to solve this problem on a scale of Permian Basin or a scale of US. So like what we have done for ARLS, that the first basin we started was Permian, is where we took all the data that we have as a training data, actually a good portion of that data as a training data set, we built that model, which is at a basin scale model that can actually ingest all the like 320,000 wells we have so we used thousands and thousands of well as a training, build a very robust model to actually solve that problem. And now that solution is available for the whole basis. That's the kind of solution that or problem that AI is good at solving and has actually best potential, not for solving few wells. Learning about AI by solving few wells is great but as a product or as a true application of AI, we need to actually look at, tackle it to big problems. Yeah, I agree. There's been uh, a lot of, uh, shall we say, analytics companies that come out with a claim of being able to perform some sort of machine learning basis. And they've got a great interface and everything looks really good. And the story behind it is that it's been taught on five wells or 10 wells. And our learning set was in the tens of thousands of wells, which is why I believe in the data set that we've built. 
I mean, at a very high level, machine learning is like teaching a kid. Like someone has come out of a graduate school and uh, they want to actually learn something and you are showing them this is how we actually do. The more things they see, the better they will, the more experience they will have and the better their uh, capability or work will be. So it requires the, the whole concept of machine learning or AI is that you want to actually train with massive amount of very high quality data set and that actually um, solves a more complex problem. How do you discipline data? <laughs> <laughs> so you are saying that, uh, did have you talked to our lead data scientist? He calls him t himself a data janitor. Satiki. <laughs> Uh, that uh, most of the time he spend is cleaning up the data and organizing the data so that he can actually do the high quality like the machine learning AI work. So if he spends his time like out of 100 hours, 60 or 70 hours, so he is actually organizing, categorizing data set so that he can do the fun stuff in the last 30, 40 hours. I mean that's actually that's better than a good most of the places where people spend 90 hours doing the curation and 10 hours doing the fun stuff. And that was one of the reasons why we had to build the data lake. Because one of the thing is that we need all the data to be readily available in a kind of semi-usable format. That I don't need to spend time learning about the 2003 data is different than 2015 data versus 2018 data. I need to actually consume it as one big data set. So last whole year, we spend actually considerable, considerable amount of time and effort in building our data lake in which we actually took all of our commercial legacy data set and moved it on cloud. The two things that we did is one, we standardized the data set so that uh, lead data scientists don't have to spend uh, on doing genitorial, data genitorial work. And uh, second is creating metadata. So what metadata is that aggregate information. For example, um, Arvind Sharma, what is the metadata about Arvind Sharma? Um, that uh, he is five feet 10, uh, don't have a lot of hair. Um, <laughs> he drives uh, some car and he, he has gone to, he has PhD, like so some aggregate information, like out of, uh, like rather than cell by cell information about Arvind, what is the minimum uh, set of aggregate information that you can use to define Arvind? So that's the metadata about any data set. So what we did when we were moving this uh, uh, massive amount of data set into our data lake, for each of these data set, we extracted this aggregate information that where it was recorded, when it was recorded, what are the basic things done to this data set, what is the maximum amplitude in this volume, what is the minimum amplitude in this volume, what is the average amplitude in this. So those things we actually use it because a lot of analytics is the some of the higher level analytics will be about integrating the information about data set. Like Facebook uses information about people to make some of the decision. We are not that creepy as that Facebook, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's like taking the information about the data set and actually learning 
creating knowledge about it, the basin. It's interesting when you we're talking about the data janitorial work yeah. and how we've kind of standardized our data set on the on the cloud because it kind of brings it full circle back to something you said early on and that was that we want our customers to be able to get to that decision-making point sooner without having to do all that data janitorial work. I've been going to data management conferences for 25 years and I hear the same thing every year for 25 years. I spend fill in, my, fill in the blank percentage of my time, 60, 70, 80% of my time looking for data and the remainder actually working with it. That's what an analytics ready data set is going to allow us and our customers to be able to do is not have to do all that janitorial work but actually get to the point where I can actually start interpreting what that data means to me to make decisions. So looking towards the future of the industry, do you think we're going to continue to ramp up in terms of speed and getting to the good stuff, the fun part? Do you think that's going to continue to logarithmically uh, increase? Probably faster than we can ever imagine. Uh, yes. I, think the <laughs> I think the change that we saw with companies moving to the cloud companies going toward um, uh, service-based solutions, uh, companies moving toward high volume, normalized, consistent data sets. All of these things have been moving at light, light speed compared to what they were uh, the, the past 25 years up until today. Every day, about, probably about every three weeks, we basically have got some new technology that's been released that we can start adopting and putting into our workflows that wasn't there three weeks, three weeks prior. Uh, open source, it comes back to that topic as well. More and more of these tech firms are putting the data out as open source. It means we could leverage it and get to solutions faster. So to answer the question, absolutely faster than we can possibly imagine. Well, awesome. I cannot wait to get to this future with both of you. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today, being part of our first episode of Beneath the Subsurface. It was an absolute pleasure. Um, if our listeners want to learn more about what TGS is doing with AI, you can visit TGS.com. You can visit our new TGS.AI platform. And um, we'll have some additional show notes on our website um, to go along with this episode. Thank you, Erica. Yeah, Thank you thanks a lot. Much. I appreciate it.